Welcome to this episode of Dad Bod History, where the drinks are cold and the takes are old. Today, we have a special guest, Jackson Van Uden, author of The Crystallization of Totalitarianism, How the 1953 Conference on Totalitarianism Defined the Term. Uh, Jackson, thank you very much for joining us. I'm Jake. We got Eric here. Um, how you doing? What, what time is it over there right now? Uh, right now, it's four o'clock. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure you. to be on here. Excellent. Um, yeah, so, so you have this book that you... You wrote and published the crystallization of totalitarianism, and uh, you know we we read it and it's a fascinating read because I don't know if you meant to do it this way, but I was reading it and it it almost began reading you know you your first sentences interest in total your interest in totalitarianism initially began after reading George Orwell's 1984, and can you go into a little bit more detail on that because I want to follow up on that that point later but is that that is that what started this all was orwell yeah pr- pretty much uh i think i was about 15 um and i saw a censored edition of the penguin uh copy you know the one uh-huh. with the blacked out writing and everything uh and i read it i just fell in love with it and i i actually collect 1984 covers now um so you collect the covers what is that yeah so i collect the books but i have different covers for every single one so uh, like for different editions yeah okay so it's I think I've got nine different copies now. Um, so that kind of what sparked it, because uh, I was just so fascinated about how every facet of his life is being watched and mm-hmm. controlled. And even when he thought he had freedom, he was still being observed. Yeah. Um, so that just kind of kicked it off. And I was like, well, how there are regimes like this. What do they actually do and how do they actually operate? Well, and, and that brings me to, the, I guess, to my second question is uh, Eric and I and up a couple months ago, we did an episode on 1984 and just kind of did a review of, of the book and its implications for today. But reading your, your book, and obviously your book's a lot more academic, but it was almost like reading a primer for totalitarianism. And it was like so much of the stuff, I'm like, well, this is thought crime and these are the thought police and like, and these are the ministries of, you know, of Ingsoc. And it was so fast. And obviously Orwell lived it. So he knows, you know, he knows totalitarianism, but it was so interesting how he wasn't just making stuff up, I guess is the way to put it. Like his book, 1984 was, I mean, it drew a lot of parallels from what was discussed at this conference. Oh, hundred percent. And Orwell, even as a communist <laughs> socialist, whatever you want to label him, mm-hmm. he was acutely aware of the dangers of where these things can go. Sure. Um, and he was even witnessing the USSR get into this point. You know, he had he had seen the the great purges of the thirties uh, and saw what that that could do to uh-huh. the rest of society, and it was kind of a warning, really, uh, of which this conference was as well. So it's quite interesting, like you said, the parallels between Orwell and the conferences. Yeah, I mean, it was just it was eerie because the the parallels were there, and it's. Um it was really a good read in that regard. Like I was, it was engaging. Cause I'm like, Oh, wow. This all, this all connects. Um, so I guess what I pulled from the book and is that there was two, at least dominant definitions of totalitarianism 
that seemed to have come out of this conference. One was by uh, Keenan or Kennan, uh, George Kennan, and the other was by J, uh, Carl Friedrich. And they both had kind of these defining terms of, of what would make a totalitarian government. Uh, Kennan said, uh, monopolistic control of weaponry, transportation, communication, uh, preemptive prolific, prophylactic system of terror, and then ruthless arbitrary exercise of power. And then Friedrich, similarly, um, you know, he said there's an official state ideology, a single mass party, technolo technologically conditioned near monopoly of all armed combat, conditioned monopoly of, the, of mass communication, and a terroristic system of control. So that control, that constant um, surveillance, and that, that uh, control of all communication seem to run parallel in both these definitions. Yeah, it's and it's... It's fascinating, really, because they both lived it, but from different perspectives. Uh, Friedrich was German, and mm -hmm. he had witnessed uh, the Nazis, and he managed to escape from them. So that's kind of mm -hmm. built from his experience. Mm -hmm. Also, Kennan was a diplomat, and he had experienced the, the totalitarianism of the Baltic states and other Eastern European states, and, and Russia as well. So yeah. it's very interesting how these... Uh, definitions are built from lived experiences in different systems, but there's still huge amount of similarities between them. Yeah. Well, and, and I want to throw it to Eric because Eric, you've got a lot more focus on World War II than I do, but just in, in your reading, Jackson, of the book, but you see the Nazis and their propaganda. I think it was Goebbels, right? He was the big propagandist yeah. for the Nazi regime. And, and similarly, Stalin had his own propaganda arm and they you know conveyed a specific message that followed the party line and and if you veered outside of that or if you try to get information elsewhere it was violently suppressed and eric can you i guess add a couple thoughts on that at least well one of the the you know carl friedrich mentioned that the the nazis and soviets are basically alike and that that was something you mentioned in the book um and and when you look at these two regimes they seem very similar in terms of how they went about their business the only difference was what they were aiming at, right? Hitler wanted a capitalistic society. Stalin wanted a socialist society. I guess my follow-up question to that is, at what point does it not matter what your goal is? Um, at what point do your means become the ends? I think I think the diff uh, what kind of sets me about is Hitler actually had the war, which kind of interrupted his end. So we don't get to see the end goal uh, of Nazism, we kind of know what it is, but we don't get to see that compared to Stalin. Um, but I think with Stalin, we kind of see that he kind of abandons and changes what he's doing so many times um, that it's all about just pushing Russia forward. And it's the same with with Hitler. It's all about pushing Germany forward and rebuilding mm -hmm. uh, from a collapse of something. So we see the collapse of Weimar, Weimar Germany. Uh, you see the collapse of Tsarist Russia. So there are massive similarities. And I think the means of just killing people to them end up to a similar end of just an advanced superior nation that is a world superpower that dominates the world yeah. politically and economically. You know, when you, you just mentioned it, and, and I did have a note that I highlighted in the book about the fact that both of these nations came out of a very recent collapse of a monarchy, a very strong monarchy. Um, and it just brought into my head, I don't know if you've read Eric Fromm's Escape from Freedom. 
you know, where he argues that the reason you end up with some of these uh, kind of socialist or totalitarian states is that people, in some sense, don't really want to be completely free. And so when you look at Germany and Russia, they're coming out of monarchies that had a lot of control. Is it the swing into an open system just couldn't be handled by those populations at the time? I think there's kind of a kind of a blind reaction of just walking into something of, you know, anything is better than what we just had. Um, you know, ger- the Germans have just experienced hyperinflation, mm-hmm. uh, massive economic crash. And, you know, Hitler's Hitler's offering and the Nazi party are offering something that speaks to them, something that's different. And, you know, they can see an end goal, which is better. And they're thinking, well, we always have coalitions. So the coalition will deal with the policies that we don't like and we'll have everything mm-hmm. we want. So there's that kind of everyone's walking that way uh, and not realising that, you know, the coalition's not going to be strong enough to deal with him and they're going to get all the policies they don't like and they'll just mm-hmm. have to live with them. Uh, similarly in Russia as well, um, there's a little bit of difference as in terms of it's revolution, it's not democratic, but to a lot of Russians at that point, anything was better than Tsar Nicholas II. Um, I'm sure you guys know, and most of your listeners know that Tsar Nicholas II was pretty much hopeless. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was. Yeah, we've we've actually gone into that a bit. Um, he was, you know, he was not his father, basically, right? Yeah. Alexander, who was a very a powerful, effective ruler of a vast empire, and and Nicholas just couldn't handle the pressure, which shows the fragility of absolute monarchies. Because, and it kind of shows after reading the book, it shows the fragility of totalitarian regimes. Because once Stalin died, that was the beginning of the end for the Soviets. I mean, yeah, they were still very powerful up until the eighties, but nobody was Stalin. I mean, no, nobody else captured that magnetism that Stalin had, um, you know, and, and we, we also never really get to see what happens after Hitler because within a week of Hitler dying, uh, I believe it's uh, Carl Donitz is the one who's left and his first move is to surrender. So um, because mm-hmm. they were at war, had Nazi Germany never been at war, we could have seen how does uh, a personality cult transfer power like, and we never got to see that. Thankfully we never got to see that, but yeah, uh, that would have been a, a different look than what we saw with the Soviets. Yeah, I think, I think what's really, like, like I said earlier, what's really <laughs> interesting about the whole thing is that Nazis, we don't see where the Nazis go. We don't see what happens to Nazi Germany um mm. because because they lost and there are there are at different stages of totalitarianism as well you know germany was already industrialized mm-hmm. so they're moving forward with rebuilding meanwhile stalin had to industrialize russia uh and push through but i think we see with the the handover of that personality cult i think china is a really good example of um how to manage that and how to work through that um because you know that Mao Mao died, it's passed on, and uh, Xi Jinping is still kind of seen as totalitarian now. Um, mm-hmm. And that's you know mathematically sixty years. Um, you know, yeah, a, 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 since since Mao was in power. So you know, there's you you can kind of see how these things pass on. Well, and it's funny because you 
I think towards the end you were talking about, uh, I forgot his first name, but it was Deutsch who, and he was talking about that. Like he accurately predicted the disintegration of the USSR, but not that of China or North Korea. And in fact, China has become more stable and more powerful and more influential um, as time has worn on. And they, you know, they're uh, still a very totalitarian regime, you know, and it's very interesting how in Russia they fell and the satellites of a lot of Eastern Europe fell once Russia fell and obviously the Nazis were defeated, but China is just chugging along there. And they're kind of an exception to that disintegration that was predicted. I think China kind of learned the lessons that were on display. Um, You know, they'd witnessed the USSR kind of give too much liberalization and then not be able to claw its way back. Mm -hmm. Um, Meanwhile, I speak about the Fang Shou cycle, uh, which is where the Chinese gave relative periods of relaxation. So you could enjoy uh, life, a little bit of liberalization, but then they gave the close. So after so long, they kind of closed up, tightened up their laws um, Mm -hmm. and their openness, liberal liberalization and punish people for things that, you know, five years later. So it gives that little bit of hope that. Well, that's something you you brought up in the book and I don't remember who it was, but you said the effects of a terroristic police force kind of dull over time. And so you got to mix it with periods of calm Um, because if it's just going to be this forever then people the people will start pushing back um or it's, it's just not as effective and so they would have these intentional periods of stability and calm and then they like you just said they could ramp it up to make sure people knew hey we're, we're still in charge here i mean yeah that was stalin stalin was so brutal for periods of time and then he just wouldn't kill as many people i'm not gonna say <laughs> it was a scale <laughs> so yeah, you get these periods, and I find those really quite interesting because you go from you know the, the knock in the middle of the night to mm-hmm. something different, which is just a little bit more political. Mm-hmm. That's a that's very true. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's so interesting because you know growing up in America, which is a you know a modern Western style democracy, and the same thing with with the UK. It's it's funny to to at least for me to kind of relegate authoritarians and totalitarians to the dustbin of history. It's like, well, that never has happened here, you know, but it wasn't that long ago. And it's kind of, if you're not vigilant, it could happen here. And it's, uh, it's just an interesting, it was a good reminder to read this book and go, oh yeah, these are, you know, whether or not you got a Stalin coming in as the next prime minister of the UK or, or the next president of the United States, you you do have these things where you can do mass surveillance and the use of the police force. Those are very authoritarian trends that need to be guarded against. And I think that was that was part of my reason for wanting to publish it because I'd done so much of this research, my dissertation. I was like, actually, there's there's things that I want to teach people about. There's things that mm-hmm. I think people should be aware of, and and things that downright irritate me of of reading like i say in the book trump was not a totalitarian i don't i don't care how many times someone tweets trump's totalitarian he wasn't 
he just had authoritarian tendencies. He's some, he was someone yeah. who liked control. Um, so for me, letting people know what totalitarianism is was a huge, huge reason for wanting to put that out because uh, it's important to me. Well, it's a word that gets thrown around and misused all the time. And it, the same thing goes with fascist, right? Oh, well, you're a fascist. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, it's like... It's like it's an easy dig. It's an easy label to throw on people, but it's so misunderstood that when you do that, it it becomes of no it, value as a word. I mean, it sounds like you might need a conference to define the term. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You need a bunch of academics to have a conference. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> let me ask you this. You say, you know, Trump is not a totalitarian in it, and I'll agree with you. So is it? Is it the the mechanics and the the institutions that that prevent that from actually being the case? Well, first of all, Trump was elected, um, and Trump was elected out of office. Um, anyone who, firstly, can be elected and still be kind of restrained, and then elected out of office, has a power that they are beholden to. They're not beholden to just themselves like Stalin was or so on. They they are not the ultimate power. So in that respect, he's not a totalitarian. Um, he did not have a monopolization of arms. You guys have the right to um right to bear arms and a well-regulated militia. Therefore, you know, one tendency can't be. Uh doesn't have a monopoly on communications, you know, as as, as much as he tried to do, he couldn't get uh, Microsoft to buy TikTok or to control Facebook or whatever. Forgot about that. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and Jack just kicked them off Twitter too. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So you know, there's t- there's two things there. Um, and I don't. I haven't read a copy, but as many people who own the art of the deal, the art of the deal is not a doctrine or body of work. Um, there is not two mass oh there's not one single mass party there's there's two parties with little shoot-offs that half of which don't like him mm-hmm. um and then you know economically he doesn't have massive control either um mm-hmm. or had massive control that's most that's in the hands of the u.s treasury and big multinational corporations so there's there's so many ways to say he's not totalitarian just because you don't like him doesn't mean you can you can brand him at that now, conversely, you mentioned this in the book, uh, Vladimir Putin is centralizing authority around Vladimir Putin, you know, and he keeps changing the the constitution or the, the Duma and making it so basically he's president or dictator for life. Uh, and he does, he doesn't only have authoritarian tendencies, he's putting a lot of muscle behind those tendencies to promise this nationalistic resurgent Russia, right? You know, and, and relive, bring back the glory of the USSR, if not the name. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mentioned, <laughs> I mentioned he was marching Russia back to totalitarianism. You know, they, they have democracy, well, a democracy. Um, yeah. If, you know, if that's what you call it, but he's, he's locking up political opponents. He's mm-hmm. poisoned uh, people, well, People have fallen ill uh, who have opposed his um, his democratic will. He has control of the oligarchs, which sure. in turn means he controls economically. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he is definitely getting on the way to it. Uh, if not, he's already there. Mm-hmm. So 
I, I think Putin is pro- like most definitely a totalitarian uh, leader. Mm. And he's probably, he's not the only one in, in Europe as well. I mean, only, what month is it? Oh, Christ, it's November. Uh, six months ago, I think, uh, Alexander Lushenko in Belarus yeah. was declared a totalitarian leader by the UN. So it is something that is, there is a resurgence in it. Man. Yeah, definitely. And there's a close ties between Lushenko and, and Putin in that regard. I mean, they're, of course, very, yeah. they're on very friendly terms. Um, so you mentioned the UN declared him a totalitarian dictator. Is is that something the UN does? Do they um, sit down? Do they take a look at this committee's definition and say, this person meets those criteria, so we're going to just put out a statement on that? Well, there's, there's so many different theories on what totalitarianism is. Uh, firstly, because Lushenko went and depressed a democratic election, uh, you know, I think the UN were well within their rights to say that he was totalitarian. He definitely... Mm-hmm suppress democracy and he used the secret police to kind of enforce it. Uh, but on the theories, there are several different. So for me, the Brzezinski and Friedrich definition from the mm-hmm. 60s is the six characteristics is definitely probably my preferred. But there's other theories to say, you know, if someone in a country says that their leader is totalitarian, who am I to... I'll go against their opinion, like their lived experience. The people in this mm. conference came up with these definitions. A, they were political theorists, philosophers, and scientists, but they have lived experiences. Uh, Hannah Arendt experienced totalitarianism. So did Friedrich. So did Kennan. So did Glixman and all those people. Um, but who am I to deny someone's experience if they said they're living underneath it? And then there's there's Raymond Aaron's definition, which is in the footnotes later on in the book. And so is Lev Goodkoff's, that is more Soviet, like Soviet centric. Mm-hmm. So there's so many different theories. And you know, in five years' time, 20 years' time, we want so on, we might have Chinese scholars coming out and saying this is what totalitarianism is. We might have no uh, North Korean scholars coming out and say this is what it is. So it's uh it's an evolving thing, mm-hmm. but yeah, the human but it, definitely within their right. But even in, even within that evolving thing, these these common threads keep creeping up. You know, the control of media, the control of economy, the the control of all armed forces. I mean, all those things, whether it's Russian, German, Chinese, or someone else, it's it is very you know the flavor might be different, but the main substance is basically the same. Um, that they 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 all use the same playbook, so to speak, on how to centralize power around themselves or the party. Yeah, definitely the same playbook, and I like I like the the idea about flavor as well. I should have used that. Uh, That'll be but, the next edition. You can just yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know, you only need to look at like Kim Jong Il. Oh no, Kim Jong Un. It's Kim Jong Un now. Uh, you only need to look at Kim Jong Un and see the kind of playbook that he's following. You know, he's mm-hmm. following that Soviet style, the Chinese style mm-hmm. on, on how to do it. You know, he even, you know, mid pandemic or beginning of the pandemic, he faked his own death to find out who would try and usurp his power. And then he yeah. came, he was like, Oh no, actually I'm alive and just purged everyone. So, you know, he is using these things to kind of consolidate power, remove political opponents. Um, Oh, I, I was just going to ask you a question because as 
I was reading this, I was like, well, what's the best way to combat this? I guess, like, how do we make sure that we guard against it? I mean, it's good that the UN can declare these things. And I'm not a big fan of invading countries, even if they are authoritarian or otherwise. So what, what's the best way to, to combat the rise of totalitarianism in the world? Cause it sure seems like it ain't going away. Uh, the thing, the thing is like, just read, just read information and be aware sure. of what's happening. Um, but also be aware of what the limit is. Uh, mm -hmm. You can't just run around branding people totalitarian all the time. Uh, otherwise, <laughs> the term's going to be softened and it's just not going to work. So, yeah. you know, being acutely aware of what's going on and reading and questioning things. You know, why mm -hmm. are we doing this? Sure. Uh, why has that happened? And then you can kind of get a gist of, actually, this is a path that I don't want things to go down. I'm going to try and do something mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. Uh, and then globally, just being aware, again, just being aware of these issues. Um, unfortunately, we've kind of, we as a Western international community have kind of allowed it to happen um, because we just let China move on because we were like, well, it's not too much of a threat right now, so we'll just leave it. And then it got to a point where it was like, well, if we invade, we'll be in massive trouble with the Russians, so we'll just leave it. Mm -hmm. um so there's only so much international pressure can do you just have to help the people in these countries because that's what helped that's what happened with russia russia had increased liberalization increased knowledge increased awareness of what was going on outside that mm -hmm. they started to question things um and that's why there's stuff like stuff such as like leaflet drops usb stick drops uh radio drops in in north korea because Radio Free Europe, I think it was called, helped um, Eastern Europe kind of be aware of what was going on. Yeah, it's a good way. I, it's anecdotal, um, but I believe it was during Khrushchev's time as the premier in Russia, and he came to the United States, and they took him to a grocery store in, in America, and it was just filled with grocery. Like it was packed to the gills, whereas in Russia, the everything was spare and there was bread lines. And, and so like to it, America's ability to feed its people had more of an impact on the destabilization of Russia than all the bombs or all the tanks or all the soldiers ever would, because it showed them in a way, this is a better option. And you can have this option if you push for it. Yeah, exactly. And it, it took another 40 years after Khrushchev. Yeah, but, yeah it didn't um, happen fast. Yeah. <laughs> but there was an increased awareness um, yeah. of what was going on outside. And, you know, we see it in 1984, Winston has an increased awareness and then begins to question things. Mm -hmm. um, so Orwell, again, was ahead of his time uh, and aware of these things, uh, but also if you go too far within these states, there are punishments to be had. Um, yeah. Quite often in North Korea, the people who defect are the diplomats who are working abroad or the people who, are wor who worked as loggers in the uh, western side of uh, Russia. Okay. Is it eastern side, sorry. So these people who became more aware were the first to kind of uh, quit and then their families were punished. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Eric, did you have any other questions? 
Well, I know we, one of the things we, we looked into or when we were reading about this is, is just kind of totalitarian regimes often find it necessary to co-opt religion within those countries. Katie, tell us a little bit more about how that works and why that seems necessary. So uh, religion is something that people totally build their life around um, and tend to have dogmatic beliefs about, you know, you go to church every Sunday, um, you, you fulfill these kind of like daily routines, you pray and so on. And it affects the totality of the system. If you have something else that you believe in, um, especially in, in Stalin's Russia is everything was about the system and Stalin was the person who gave you your bread and so on. So he was, he was the one who was in charge. Religion affected that totality because people didn't thank Stalin and the state for what they had to thank God. And that, you know, that's, well, it's not Russia. It's not communism. And communism is inherently atheist anyway. So to remove the religious aspect from communist totalitarianism helped with the system because, uh, you know, you remove that total influence from someone like someone's life. So they are the whole. Although team. in the book, and I'll just say it and hand it off to you and Eric, Stalin eventually kind of liked the idea of being deified. Right. You said initially yeah. he pushed back against that, but then he's like, hey, this isn't so bad. I mean, there is no God, but I am God sort of thing. And I, I just thought that was a fascinating twist. Like you can you can take, you know, take the, the religion out of Russia, kind of, but it, it'll in a way it's going to implant itself on to someone or something. Uh, if if you remove the church aspect, it, it'll find people will find a way to something to uh, worship to co-opt that. Yeah, to work. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. People need something, um, and if Stalin is the one who's delivering you something, and he's the one who's calling a halt to all these arrests, mm -hmm. well, then he's the one who saved you. So it's that it's those little things, those little hopes that people wanted and people needed. Um, you know, most of the great dictators in the world are great. I, I don't know why I said great, but most of the, the uh, most notorious dictators in the world have had a cult of personality. The, the Kim dynasty, Mao, Stalin. There was a slight one over Hitler, but that was, you know, again, a fascist, uh, fascist totalitarian state. So it's slightly different. But yeah, there's still cult personality around these people. Well, in the, the revisionist history, you know, uh, Stalin revising Trotsky's accomplishments to be his own. Um, same thing with history begins at Mao. And and every the more I thought about it, it's more going back to 1984 is I love Big Brother. Right. At, the, at some point, Big Brother, whether or not Big Brother was ever really a person, transcended the physical realm and became whatever their God or their worship object was. Yeah, I mean, you see that you see that with Stalin is that Stalin just becomes this almighty, omnipotent, omnipresent uh, feature of uh, Stalinism in Russia. You know, people have his portraits in their houses. Uh, people had a pin of Mao on their on their jackets, and you know that's that's something that not only transcends the system, but it goes into you being there all the time, and it subconsciously 
you know, you'll behave because you're like, well, Stalin's off the wall. I don't want to misbehave in front of Stalin. Mm-hmm. You know, start uh, Mao's on my chest. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna misbehave in front of Mao. Yeah, uh, and it just kind of feeds into that. Yeah, it's such a, it's such an interesting dynamic. Again, anecdotal. And years ago, it just came into my head. I remember either reading something or seeing on the news that North Korea Kim Jong Un said there was only certain approved haircuts for men, and they had to be his haircut. You know, you couldn't, you, you had to dress like him. You had to look like him. Everything, you know, everything about it was in idolation of this person, which works if the person is strong, like a Stalin or a Mao, but what if Stalin dies? Well, then God is dead. And then what do you do? <laughs> like, like you, you've, you've built the whole system on one man and that's a very dangerous system to have. And on Stalin's de on Khrushchev's de-Stalinization, it must've been quite difficult for some of these Russians to de-Stalinize their places to take the, mm-hmm. the the statues down to remove the pictures because that's the person you worship for the like, you know, best part of 30 years. Yeah. Um, and to suddenly see that statue come down, to suddenly see mm-hmm. uh everything just collapse, it's difficult. And again, Stalin's death, uh, really well uh like satirized in uh the death of Stalin movie, even though it's not hundred percent factually correct. Uh, kind of shows that grief that people mm-hmm. had towards Stalin's death. Um, and, you know, same thing with Kim Jong-il. He was deified to that extent that North Koreans didn't think that he went to the toilet. And <laughs> you know, I didn't know that. <laughs> so those kind of things are like, well, why, why are we perpetuating that? And again, it's that godlike deification of these people. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Eric. Oh, uh, if you had a question on the book, Jake, I was going to get some other questions. So you mentioned 1984. I think we all love 1984. It's pretty fantastic. Besides 1984, what's a book that has kind of uh, influenced you, whether it's it's about totalitarianism or just in general? What's a, a book that you think is just the best? The book Stoner. Uh, I can't remember who wrote Stoner, but it's just really, really left a mark on me because it's just so fantastically written. And it goes goes through this man's life. Nothing remarkable happens. He moves out in a small town. He becomes a university professor. Um, he gets married. No, it just goes through his life. And for a book so mundane, it was really, really well written. I just kept wanting to read it. Uh, and then, secondly, uh, the Great Expectations, Great Expectations by Charles Dickens, because I stormed into my mum and dad's room at the end of it and was like, "What the hell's going on here? Why did he do that?" Uh, <laughs> bit like something from Silver Lion's Playbook when he throws the book out the window. But yeah, those <laughs> those two books. <laughs> awesome. Thank good. you. And uh, it, so I, you know, we didn't get a whole lot into you. Uh, you know. Where are you? Where are you at in the UK? And and what do you? What is your next step after this book? Yeah, so I'm I'm based in obviously the UK. I'm based in uh, East Anglia, East Midlands. Uh, you know the right hand, the bit that juts out. I'm in that bit. Um, uh, about half an hour north of Cambridge, which for us is a long drive. Um, and yeah. <laughs> 
I'm currently doing like teacher training. So I'm going to, I'm, I'm a history teacher at the moment. And next step is just to kind of take a little research break and then jump on to writing more about totalitarianism because it's, it's such a fascinating area of history. Um, and people need to know about it. So yeah, working in that area. Very good. Jake, did you have any fun questions? Okay. Yeah. So, all right. Which, uh, I got, so something that we've, kind of got as a trend at uh, dab on histories, I'll take historical hypotheticals. So which totalitarian leader would be the most fun at a party? Obviously, Joseph, <laughs> St- obviously Joseph Stalin's being invited. Um, Mao, Hitler. And I don't know why Hitler always makes it onto these terrible lists, but um, so <laughs> terrible. Stalin, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Hitler. Uh, and who else? Let's go. Let's go with Lushenko, since he's a okay. current one. I mean, just just to say, these this I've been looking forward to these questions so much after listening to several of your episodes. Oh God. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, Stalin. I, I'm not a big drinker. I don't drink, and Stalin did like a drink. Um, yeah. Hitler was a teetotaler. Yeah. So, he, but he he did do a lot of other stuff. Uh, <laughs> I, th- I think I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Hitler. I think to find out all the information that we don't okay. know would be really interesting from Hitler. But I am absolutely fascinated with Stalin, so it's it's a tough call. But I don't think I could keep up with Stalin with the alcohol. So I'll go with Hitler. <laughs> so, Eric, who do you who do you got? Most fun at a party? Uh, yeah. Mao does not look like any fun at all. I do think Stalin would be, he can let loose. I think Hitler was just too uptight. Uh-huh. I, I feel like he was just too uptight. I think Stalin may have been able to let loose once in a while. He, you know, his young picture, he looks pretty dashing. Looks like he had a, probably a good time. So mm-hmm. I'm guessing he's going to be the most fun. Okay. It's interesting. Wasn't Mao a teacher? Yeah, yeah it was librarian pinning as well. everything on us. <laughs> <laughs> it's the teachers, man. I, but he doesn't look fun. No, he looks like an assistant. He looks like a vice principal. That's what the problem is. It doesn't look fun. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're going to party with anybody who's as terrible as those four, I, I'm probably going Stalin. Um, you know, he was one of the big three in World War II. And, I'm guessing him, Churchill, and Roosevelt put a few back when they got done at the Yalta oh, courts. Yeah, so um, that those are yeah probably Stalin. He would he would be the the one of those four that I would pick. Um, I, mean, I, I would throw Kim Jong Un in there. I mean, anyone who's friends with Dennis Rodman and that's a good oh my one. gosh, I forgot about that. Yeah, I mean, so I would. he looks like he can bring the catering. Oh, 100%. I've, I've, I haven't read a few things. He loves his sushi. He loves his basketball. You know, I think you'd have a pretty sick day there. But, and he'd let you use rocket launchers. And, and they're all a little crazy. Point. All these guys are a little crazy. But didn't he, like, kill one of his generals with an artillery gun? Yes. A few years back, he lined up. like It was like his uncle. Like, that's the problem. Like, that party could get out of hand real quick. 
in North Korea. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Having read that article where he, he, like, he shot him with an artillery shell, I was I was both laughing in disbelief and horror. Yeah. Because, well, no, you couldn't possibly have done that. And why is that your preferred method of execution <laughs> at this point? I mean, a lot of people have been executed over over the humanity's history. I don't know if a lot of them have been executed if, with a howitzer. So. If you have a monopoly of arms, you need to utilize that. <laughs> yeah, what are they going to do? Just sit in a warehouse and collect dust? It's such a juxtaposition as well, because the U- Russians used to line people up to save bullets. <laughs> and there, there's Kim Jong-un using an artillery shell when people are starving. So you can see where the priority is. Yeah. That's so wild. Um, that, that, yeah, that, that does sound like a very Soviet thing. You know, you got three soldiers, give them one gun, one one ammunition clip. You've got 10 prisoners, try to use as few bullets as possible. Just. And you've made them dig the hole. So you are saving. Yeah, it's all about that, they were very effective. It's all about that collectivization. You got to yeah. efficiency. Um. Okay, I, I like it. That that was really the only main question I had is Lushenko, Kim on Kim Jong-un, Putin, um, or or Xi Jinping. Which one of those four would you go punch in the face? And you gotta deal with the consequences. So you punch him in the face. I remember I said Genghis Khan's last one. Um <laughs> you said Genghis Khan? Man, you're you're a brave guy. Well, I, I took it into account that he's he was five eight. You know, he was about half my weight. Yeah, he's the one that did the Six research. Is shorter, so okay. I thought you know he had the uh, the Dungeons and Dragons stat cards on. Apparently, <laughs> yeah. I'm not punching Putin. Uh, I'm just not. That's he's no. trained in martial arts, ex KGB. That that that'll be a brave decision. He's going to slap you with that radium. Is that what they use? <laughs> oh, the radium poisoning. The, yeah, the, he's going to have radium lace gloves or something. And there's that video of Putin going around teaching the kids how to flip an adult onto the uh, the martial arts mat. So it's Russian primary school is way different than America. It's like a black belt of Taekwondo or something. One of them. Yeah. I'm not going near him. Uh, okay. Kim Jong Un. Kim Jong Un. Kim Jong Un. Kim Jong Un. Didn't think- he? Didn't he like study at Cambridge when he was younger? Like he, maybe it was in Cambridge, but he did come to some European, I thought it was in England, some university and was kind of a book bookish guy. I just, I just think he would, out of everyone, I know Lushenko is a bit older, but I think out of everyone, I think he would take it the best. Mm -hmm. Although like you possibly get, getting killed later on. You get an artillery. That's a chance. I think, yeah, I think you've got longer. Okay. Yeah, but I can think, you you can outrun him? Like, you can't outrun him. First of all, yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna break any of my knuckles on any bones of his. No. And second of all, I'm gonna be out be able to outrun him. Pretty Where are easily. you punching though? Um, Where are you? Ooh, uh, right in that nose. Right in the nose. Okay. Yeah. I, th- so I here- think I think Kim Jong Un is the one. Okay, so I'm going to take a different tack with my answer. I'm going to say, I'm going to say Putin, because I think Putin is the kind of guy that would respect somebody that punched him in the face. He might still 
wreck me. <laughs> but I think, like, I think Xi Jinping or Kim, Kim Jong-un, I don't think they would take kindly to getting punched in the face and there would be very severe. But if I'm, if I'm playing off this Russian bear type, I think they would be more okay with random punches in the face than not. And, and so I, I think my chances, I'm still going to get hurt, but I think they would respect it more like so than, short, short yeah. term pain over long term. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think Kim Jong-un would make me suffer and same thing with Xi. So, all right. That, that was my final uh, historical hypothetical. <laughs> so, um, but Jackson, thank you so much for joining so, us. I, yeah, oh, Jackson, uh, you know, where can people get the book uh, and when can they get the book and where can they get to you on social media and all that kind of stuff? So, oh, I've got a blurred background. Uh, the book is available on Amazon. It's available as a paperback, uh, hardback or a Kindle edition. Um, I think the hardback is more widely available uh, over your neck of the woods. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's available on Amazon. If people do want a signed copy, uh, they are on my website, but I'm just trying to sort out like shipping stuff because I've only had one order signed. So okay. um, <laughs> we'll, we'll sort that out. Anyone who wants one, just message me. Uh, and then I'm on Twitter as History W Jackson, Instagram and Facebook as at History with Jackson. And then my website is www.historyjackson.co.uk. And I'm more than happy to anyone message me with questions or anything about totalitarianism because I just love chatting to people about it. Well, thank you for having, for joining us because it was a really good book and it was really enlightening and, and the conversation even more so. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I'm really grateful for the opportunity. So thank you guys. And mm -hmm. Eric was wondering if he'd be able to understand me. So hopefully I've delivered a, a clearer oh yeah no yeah, we, i had my interpreter know. next to me the whole time <laughs> it's gonna be uh dick van dyke for mary poppins or something like it's uh no it was it was awesome um but thank you so much and uh for everyone else thank you guys for joining us dad by history uh and we'll see you all next week